You are listening to the Fly on the Wall podcast with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Conversations about business, politics, government, education, and so much more. Now, here is your host, Ambassador Delano Lewis. This is Fly on the Wall podcast, and I am Delano Lewis. And am I excited today? I'm having so much fun with the Fly on the Wall podcast. These are conversations with highly successful people that I've known over the years, and and uh, we are having conversations, and you are the fly on the wall as the conversation unfolds. And today, I have a good friend and colleague, one that I've known for a long time, who has a distinguished uh, uh, background and accomplishments, and it is a great honor that I would welcome to the podcast, Deborah Lee, former chairman and CEO of Black Entertainment Television. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you, Dell. It's my pleasure to be here. Yes, it's so exciting to to have you with Fly on the Wall podcast. I I was just thinking about this interview and saying that Debbie, let's first of all start with the name because I've called you over the years Deborah, and then every time <laughs> I get a note back from you, it's Debbie. So <laughs> I know the story of my life. I always introduce myself as Debbie, right. uh, and people always call me Deborah. So right. I answer to both. <laughs> well, I, I have the same problem. <laughs> That's a funny thing. Yeah, I, I have the same problem. I've, I grew up with Delano, and but work people and friends and business and otherwise call me Dell. So anyway, yeah. I, I'm like you. I answer to both. But right. but Debbie. You know, you have spent uh, over three decades in the cable and entertainment business. And I just think that's just absolutely fantastic. And I want to just start with just your background. And uh, Mm -hmm. I noticed you were uh, born in South Carolina, but raised in North Carolina. So just give us a sense of of the beginnings. Okay. Well, I was born in South Carolina, in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. My father was a captain in the Army most of his career. He was elevated to a major in the Army right before he retired. Fantastic. Uh, but when I was born, he was Captain Lee, and um, I was born in Fort Jackson. That's where he was um uh, assigned at the time. And about six months later, we moved to Germany. Um, so we lived a very uh, routine Army life where they moved you every two to three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was the youngest child of three. Um, so we moved to Germany and lived there maybe three or four years. Uh, and then we moved to Washington, D.C., where my dad taught um, ROTC at Howard University. Wonderful. Um, yeah, so we were there a couple of years, and he was originally from uh, D.C., so D.C. Mm-hmm. always felt like, like home. Um, and then my dad went to serve in Korea, and my mom moved us to Compton, California, wow. where she had a uh, half-sister. And so we lived in Compton for two years, and then my father came back from uh, Korea, and he retired, and he moved us to Greensboro, North Carolina. He had a a sister and a brother-in-law who lived there, and his brother-in-law was a football coach at A&T University. Wow. And they told my father, you know, if you come to Greensboro, you can be a house father at A&T, and uh, the family can live with you in the dorm, and then you can finish your uh, college degree, because he had never finished it. He went into the Army at an early age. And um, so that's what we did, and that's where I spent most of the time um, 
growing up. I was in the sixth grade when we moved to Greensboro. Uh, the job at A&T didn't work out. Oh, <laughs> the, my. The, the accommodations weren't as nice as uh, they promised. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we never lived in the dorm. Uh, we moved into a house immediately. And my father went and worked for the Greensboro Housing Authority. Uh, but I grew up in Greensboro. It was my first experience in a segregated um, community. Right. Um, the South was still very segregated at the time, and we lived on the black side of town. Uh, but I always say that uh, we never felt like we wanted for anything. We had mm-hmm. black doctors and black lawyers. We had a black bank. I went to all black high school. You know, our churches were all black. I mean, we just didn't cross Market Street. Market Street was, you know, downtown, and we just never had any reason to go across Market Street. Um, so I lived through... Um I lived through the Watts riots when we were in California, so that was an interesting experience. And by the time we moved to Greensboro, the sit-ins that you hear so much about, the right. Woolworth sit-ins, were over. Uh, but, you know, they were still going through school desegregation. And But it was a very proud community, and um, I think that's, you know, where I learned to be a leader. Uh, the first day of sixth grade, I was uh, elected class president. Wow. <laughs> so the rest, they say, is history. It's history. <laughs> well, that's incredible. The, 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 yeah. back, the background sounds very, very familiar. Uh, uh-huh. uh, you graduated John B. Dudley High School and you and uh, that James was B. Dudley. Yeah. James B. Dudley and that was uh-huh. a uh, uh, all black high school right mm-hmm. it was an all black high school they finally integrated my senior year and what so year was that you- that was 1972. Mm-hmm. So as you well know, Brown versus Board of Education was decided in 1954. Right. But it was not until 1972 that they finally integrated the schools in Greensboro. Wow. Before then, they had what they call freedom of choice, mm-hmm. which meant if you were black and you wanted to take your chances, you could apply to the white schools. And maybe a handful of uh, black students did that, uh, but most of them stayed at the, the black high school school until they had forced busing. Well, that's in, that's incredible. Yes, Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, uh, as you know, that was a 54 decision integrating, desegregating schools. And I went to law school in Washburn School of Law in Topeka, and I know very much about that that case. Mm-hmm. It was very instrumental in my life. But listening to right. you, I had the similar situation of growing up in the black community with with uh, in an all-black neighborhood and a black high school mm-hmm. and didn't cross Minnesota Avenue, which was our downtown. Right. It sounded mm-hmm. so familiar. But also out of that came a lot of positives that you talked about. Uh, The leadership, the sense of confidence, the sense of being able to achieve. Uh, That sounds also very familiar. Yes. We had teachers uh, who told us we could be anything we wanted to be as long as we studied hard um, and, you know, stayed out of trouble. (laughs) Uh, But the important thing was education. And, um, you know, I left Greensboro feeling, feeling that way, that uh, I could go to a predominantly white school, which I did. I went to Brown University. So that was a big change for me. But I really went with the confidence that I could do anything I wanted to do. That's fantastic. I was going to ask you about about how that came about, coming from Greensboro and all-black schools to Brown University and Ivy League uh, uh, private school in Providence, Rhode Island. How did that happen? 
Well, it happened because my father and his two sisters went to Dunbar High School in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. And my one of his sisters, my Aunt Laura, went to Mount Holyoke in the 40s. Wow. So it was 1940. So she was one of the black first black women admitted to um, Mount Holyoke. So my dad was always very proud of that. And he was intent that on me going to an Ivy League school, uh, which was unusual for Green. Not too many students went north of Howard University. Um, And North Carolina had such a great university system itself. So, um, you know, between Duke and and, uh, Chapel Hill and all the black universities, you know, it was a really great um, college system. So I was pretty unusual when I walked around saying I wanted to go to Ivy League school. uh, And I bet that um, wasn't easy to get in. So you must have had a pretty good academic background to get into Brown. Yeah, it's, I assume so. It was it was difficult. It was about the time that universities were starting to heavily recruit black students, especially from the South. Mm-hmm. So it was just the beginning of that period. Um, and, you know, three black students came down to visit my high school from Brown University, and wow. I was just so impressed with them um, that that was, became my number one choice. And luckily it worked out. That's fantastic. And you graduated from Brown with a bachelor's degree in political science and Asian studies. And I was yes. fascinated by, by that, <laughs> that combination. Tell me a little bit well, about the, that. Well, Del, you were re- on the, the two first trips I had, I think, to China. Right. Um, and that was the beginning of my interest in uh, Chinese communist ideology mm-hmm. uh, when I was at Brown. So that's what I studied. And it, it, didn't, uh, it took me 25 years to get to China because <laughs> it was closed. Right. I remember going to talk to my dean, telling him I wanted to spend the semester abroad in China. And he said, sorry, Deborah, you know, they're not letting Americans in right, right. now. Uh, so I went to Southeast Asia instead, and I spent six months in Thailand and Indonesia and Singapore, which was a fabulous experience. But I didn't get a chance to get to China until I was served on the board of um, Kodak um, Eastman Kodak with you right. uh, years later, and they took us um, to visit um, Shanghai first, and then we went to the Beijing uh, Olympics. Olympics. So, yeah, that was a dream come true for <laughs> right. me. But, you know, I, I, I felt at the time that capitalism wasn't really working out for, <laughs> for minorities. Right. Um, so I thought, you know, maybe communes were a, a different way. Um, so it was the 70s, and um, that's my only explanation. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. But but you're talking about something that I talk about in speeches and and you you were you were going over some of those same ideological questions that I mm-hmm. was that I was also delving into. And when you right. get and when and I'm sure your reaction was very much like mine after all these studies and having you know, an environment in the US, you get to China and mm-hmm. your ideas of oh this is communism uh, right. when you see all of the capitalistic things that were going on if you recall mm-hmm. there were nothing but cranes in Shanghai uh, right. there was all kinds of economic development so those right. labels that we talked about and communism and capitalism and all those labels really don't work right <laughs> it's really true it's it's 
a hodgepodge of, of both of them. And that's one of the great things about traveling around the world. You really get to see different um, environments and cultures. Uh, but I remember telling George Fisher when we our first stop in China that it took me 25 years to get there. Right. And, <laughs> you know, I was indebted to Kodak for giving me that opportunity. Well, um, we're going to talk about uh, your corporate board okay. experience, but there is a lot of there are a lot of steps there that that, that, oh, okay. you, that, that you have traveled that have been amazing. Amazing. Uh, I was also interested in your strong uh, push for education, and you mm-hmm. you epitomized that as uh, going leaving Brown and and going to uh, Harvard um, uh, and getting a master's in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School, and obviously right. a JD degree from Harvard uh, Law in 1980. So you mm-hmm. you obviously believe that uh, educational foundation was absolutely key uh, for the things that you wanted to do in life. Talk right. to talk I to think, us about you know, it. Both my parents uh, passed that down to me. Uh, neither of my parents uh, graduated from college, which is, is uh, you know, when I think mm-hmm. about it, I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. But they're two of the smartest people I've ever met. You know, my dad was very well-read, and my mother, not as well-read, but she was very talented, and uh, she was a seamstress and could crochet and knit and, you know, put anything up on the walls. You need. I mean, she's just really a great um, housekeeper and, and very creative. Creative, uh, but both of them instilled in me the belief that the way to get ahead um, was with education. And when I went to Brown, it was a time when we were told that a great way to be successful as an African American person was either go into law or medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, business business was not really that popular right. <laughs> within the realm within the community of our parents. Mm-hmm. They just knew if you were a doctor or a lawyer. You you could support yourself. And so that's um, the area they pushed me in, especially my father, because he always wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> but when I got to Harvard Law School, I didn't like the law. <laughs> yeah, and that's when I applied to the Kennedy School. I said, well, I have to, I can't drop out, so I have to figure out a compromise here. Mm-hmm. And I figured if I went to, I heard about the master's in public policy, and so I decided if I uh, went and got that degree, then I could go into government and be, you know, undersecretary of something. That was really my career goal. Uh, and I always wanted to give back in a way, you know, and, and that's why I was interested in law, because you saw the careers of Thurgood Marshall and Constant Baker Motley. Um, and, that, you know, early, in the early 50s and 60s, that's the way the world world was changed exactly. in the legal system. Right. But by the time I got to law school, that wasn't necessarily the case anymore. Mm-hmm. And it especially wasn't something they wanted to talk about at Harvard Law School. They right. wanted to talk about black letter law. They pushed you to go to law firms, you know, and um, it just it just wasn't the, I, you know, I was more interested in policy, but so you that's did, why I went to the Kennedy School. But you did finish and get, you did get the JD I degree. Did. Mm-hmm. I did, and I I clerked for a year. I didn't I didn't necessarily want to clerk, but a judge <laughs> I worked for at uh, Harvard Law School called me and said um, he was friendly with 
William Bryant, who was a judge in D.C., and he had a friend, another judge, Barrington uh, Parker, and he was looking for a third law clerk. He had a big securities case, uh, and it was what they called a multi-district case where you could get an extra law clerk uh, to work on that case. And so I went down and met with Judge Parker, and he offered me a clerkship. And, you know, I hadn't even applied, so it was really very strange. I had accepted a job with the Securities and Exchange Commission. I put that on hold. Mm -hmm. Um, I clerked for a year, and then Ronald Reagan won. And that changed my plans to go into a uh, into government. I didn't want to go into a Republican administration. And uh, Ronald Reagan put a freeze on um, on government hiring. So I ended up going to a law firm, which I never wanted to do, right. but I did. And it was my way to hide out until the Democrats came back. <laughs> um, but if you recall that time period, it took 12 years. Right, right. <laughs> and after about five years at the firm, I was like, okay, it's, it's time to try something else. Um, And, um, you know, to finish the story, uh, BET was a client, um, and uh, Bob Johnson offered me the position of general counsel, and, you know, that was was perfect for me because I I loved communications and media, and I didn't want to leave D.C. There weren't a lot of corporate uh, companies in D.C., as you well know. Right. Um, so I was doing some interviewing in New York, and every time I'd come back, I'm like, you know, I really like D.C. Um, and so the the offer from uh, Bob and BET came along just at the right time. Well, that's incredible. And so how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's incredible. I Listening to you, uh, it sounds so familiar because you had a certain view in life, and you really wanted to get into public policy, and law didn't, right. particular, law didn't particularly fit. But as uh-huh. things would happen, you ended up with the clerkship with Barrington Parker, which was a he was a well known, respected jurist uh, in D.C. Right. and that was a beautiful spot. And then step, mm-hmm. uh, the law firm was Steptoe and Johnson, if I Steptoe recall. Steptoe and Johnson, and That's it was correct. one of the more prominent law firms. Uh, was Ty Brown at the law firm at the time? Yes, that's, that's how I yeah. got into the communications. Right. I started working on projects with, with Tyrone Brown, who was former um, FCC commissioner, right. and, um, and BET was his client. Uh, and that's how I started working on BET matters. So yeah, that that was the, you know. And I I tell this story a lot when I do speeches to tell young people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes things work out differently <laughs> than you plan. <laughs> you know, none sure. of this was you know what I planned going into law school or coming out of law school, and it just uh, worked out perfectly in a, in a lot of different ways. You're, you're absolutely correct. And for our listeners, uh, we are Fly on the Wall podcast and conversations with uh, former chairman and CEO of Black Entertainment Television, Debbie Lee, and with a fantastic background. In the beginnings, uh, uh, at BET, you were the uh, general counsel of, of Black Entertainment Television starting in That's 1986. Right. And um, you've had uh, three decades with black <laughs> entertainment. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, uh, th- 30 In 32, years. 32 years. Because um, I stepped down last June, uh, and, and I would have never expected that. Um, and, you know, I was very happy with the title of uh, Executive Vice President and General Counsel. I thought that's as far <laughs> as you could go right. in the legal profession, and I was happy to be at a 
firm, I mean a company um, practicing law, um, and then I started, you know, doing, being, becoming more interested in business and doing more business things. Um, so my career took a different turn. And I was going to ask you about that because I think mm-hmm. for the listeners, particularly those who, those people who are interested in starting their careers or thinking about their careers, about how you'd move that transition from the law to business. Because I had mm-hmm. the very same thing working right. in legal jobs in the government, mm-hmm. uh, and then mm-hmm. I moved into the telecom industry into business, and I had no business background. Just right. share, share with our listeners about. Uh, your move from from the law to to taking on more business uh, responsibilities. Right. Well, it, it happened over time uh, as the lawyer at the company. And when I joined the company, the company is still pretty small. I had 80 employees. We had one office in D.C. at the time. Um, and, um, you know, we had maybe five or six executive vice. Well, we start, all started off as vice presidents. And one day, Bob Johnson promoted us all as executive <laughs> vice president. But anyway, they were a small group. And I always say the other uh, EVPs were more specialized than I was. They mm-hmm. were in programming or advertising, uh, uh, marketing, uh, the chief financial officer. So as a lawyer, you know, I, you could say I had a broader background. Right. Um, and over time, I started taking over more of the uh, business projects. I, I oversaw the um, construction of our first studio in Washington, D.C. Um, I ran our magazine division for a while. Uh, we started um, a magazine for uh, African-American teenagers called YSB, Young Sisters right. and Brothers, and I really loved that. I loved the magazine business. Um, and over time, I started doing more and more things at the same time, I was general counsel, right. and I finally said, okay, I can't do this. You know, you can't <laughs> keep up with the most current law when you're running businesses. Um, so, you know, it took me a while, but I finally convinced Bob that, you know, I needed my own general counsel. Um, and his his uh, decision was to create a title, of, of a position for me called um, – Chief Operating Officer, which didn't exist before, um, and then he allowed me to um, hire my own general counsel. Well, that's a fantastic uh, story. One of the yeah. things that our listeners should hear, and I don't think they could hear it, but just listening to you about the network, uh, I, uh, I had a chance. I was a good friend of Bob Johnson, and we worked right. in we worked in uh, uh, Representative Fontroy's office together. He, was, mm-hmm. he went on to cable, and I went into telecom. I knew mm-hmm. I knew Ty Brown uh, from Steptoe and Johnson, and he was very early on with BET. And I think right. I met you when you were the general counsel, and right. we were doing a cable deal, not related to BET, but Bob mm-hmm. was Bob was doing a cable deal with a private uh, firm, a private group. Right. So right. there. there is a network here uh, that sure. I think is very, very important uh, that we share together. Yes. And I don't know if you're ready to tell the story, but one of my fondest stories about you, Dell, is when you came on the board of uh, BET Holdings, uh, when uh, BET, I think, well, you know, you came on before we went private, I think. I mean, before we went public. Exactly. Um, and uh, we were trying to go pri- Well, first of all, because you knew Bob Johnson and you knew Ty Brown. Ty mm-hmm. was still uh, corporate secretary for BET. He was, he was never on the board, but he was right. corporate secretary. 
Secretary, and I, you know, worked with him on the corporate matters that were brought to the board. Uh, but when we were trying, we had been we had gone ni- public in 1991, which is an amazing experience for me as a lawyer. Right. Um, and for the company, we were the first African American company traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, and the day we started trading, you know, we all went up to the stock exchange and the people that have run tickets on the floor forever, the, the black men and women giving us high fives because <laughs> they had never seen, you know, a group of black executives come through the New York Stock Exchange. That's so that fantastic. was really exciting. Yeah, but then I remember, you know, um, the board deciding, I think it was seven or eight years later, yes. to take the company private, and we had to set up a special committee and come to find out you were the only independent <laughs> board member who was able to form the special committee uh for the um uh, you know valuation of the company and everything else that was involved in that um and so you ended up being a, a special committee of one um yeah, uh, I run that process. Yeah, I do remember that remember. story. Uh, you know, uh-huh. you know, Debbie, that's a blessing and a curse. I was independent because I didn't have uh, the, any stock compared to the the other persons on the board, right? Because I was fairly new new member, and uh-huh. although I'd known Bob all this time, so it was a blessing and a curse. And then when yeah. I took this on, my wife Gail, who, who who followed me, she's the business head. She says, "What uh-huh. are what are you doing? Right. You are the committee of one. You are right. pretty. You're." putting yourself in a very tenuous position here of, right. of moving this company uh, private. I said, well, I'm uh-huh. going to have uh, the one of the things that, that, that the board uh, approved uh, with Bob and your approval as well is that uh-huh. I, had a, I had a law firm to give me advice. And right. uh, we worked hard and uh, we put forth, uh, a, a, did it all by the book. We put forth an right. offer to, to the company to take it private uh-huh. and that was accepted. And as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> right, yeah, but you you did a great job as serving in that, but it was a lot to ask of one person to, um, you know, be a committee of one. But you had a law firm, and then there were a couple of uh, invest, investment banking firms exactly. uh, that was were helping out. But it was a very precarious position because <laughs> I felt like I was in the same position. You, right. you, you know, you were kind of between the board uh, and, and John Malone, who was one of the board members who wanted to to sell, Mm-hmm. And um, and um, well, no, Bob and and uh, John Malone were buying the company back privately, right? And then the public shareholders, you had to do a good job for them, exactly. And uh, and you know the employees and everyone else. So it, it was a uh, a difficult. I, I I remember it as taking ten months. I don't know what you remember. <laughs> it, it, it's right. It was almost a year. It, it's, yeah, it's exactly but I, right. I, I always say it was the, the one of the worst ten month periods of my <laughs> life because I had to, as you know, COO, I had to make sure that uh, the purchasers didn't do anything to devalue the company during the right, process, right. and you know that put me in a in a difficult position. But we made it through and came up with a very fair. Um, 
purchase price for the shareholders. And um, yes, yeah, I think it, it ended. Was, it's a very good story with a very good ending, and I think people mm-hmm. people did very well with the investment, and uh, I think people were pretty pleased with the outcome. And right. BET survived and began to right. flourish. And right. you became uh, when Bob stepped down. You right. you, you became the, the the head person. Yeah, uh, the and president. That was in two thousand and five. Five. You yeah, became president Bob stayed, CEO. Right. Bob stayed five years after the sale uh, uh, to Viacom mm-hmm. because that's what happened two years after we went private, private. Is Viacom came calling and saying they wanted to, you know, purchase BET. And that was another year long process with Allen and company. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I, Bob Johnson and myself both signed five year deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the end of the first five years, uh, Bob decided to leave the company and I took over. Um, so I was CEO and chairman for 13 years, wow. which is a pretty, pretty good run also. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the Viacom relationship, because now oh. you've gone from, from BET when it was public, BET when it was private. You right. went from uh, legal jobs to business operations business. jobs, and then now you're running the company on your own, and then That's Viacom different. comes and acquires you. You're in a very different role. Tell me, right. about, tell me about that relationship. Well, it was a good relationship from the start because they agreed to um, certain um, what we called social contracts right up front. Mm-hmm. Uh, they promised this was under Sumner Redstone le- leadership and, and uh, Mel Carmison. And they both uh, promised uh, Bob uh, complete autonomy. Uh, they said they were not going to run the company, uh, that they expected uh, Bob and myself and the management team to run the company. Uh, they said they wanted it to stay uh, a black targeted uh, network. They didn't buy it for the subscribers. They didn't Fantastic. plan to turn, turn it into something else. Um, so that was a great um, uh, concession. Um, and so for me, because I was not the founder, <laughs> um, it was a great learning experience to all of a sudden be a division of a huge um, media conglomerate that had, you know, seven or eight other divisions, mm-hmm. uh, including MTV and the cable networks. Paramount uh, Studios were part of the company. CBS Network was part of the company at the time. Showtime, uh, Simon and Schuster. So it was a, it was a very diverse company. Um, and uh, you know, I was used to working for others. I, I like I said, I wasn't the founder. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now I was reporting to to Mel Carmazon and eventually Tom Preston. Um, so it was a great learning experience. We, you know, I always felt like as an independent company. We kind of had to learn things on our own. As you know, John Malone was a great uh, board member and a great advisor. Uh, but we didn't have, you know, someone to pick up the phone all the time and say, how do you do this? Right. And becoming part of Viacom, we had that. You know, I could call the head of MTV or I could call the head of VH1 or Nickelodeon and say, you know, what's your budget look like? How much do you spend on marketing? Mm-hmm. You know, so it was a great learning experience. Um, and, and over time, we had more resources. Right. Um, and that's when I, and when I became uh, CEO, I was able um, to say that, you know, we were going to get into more original programming. But you, um, but, but you did some incredible things. Uh, you, uh, you know, you really uh, are being very, very modest. Once you took over, 
um, and you have that strong relationship with Viacom and those resources, you took BET to really uh, incredible heights. Uh, you did some interesting things with the BET experience, BET mm-hmm. awards, sitcoms. You expanded uh, programming. It's some tremendous kinds of uh, accomplishments. Yeah, well, thank you very much. And and one of the most um, heartwarming parts of having, having stepped down is that people still stop me on the street and thank me for, you know, turning DET into pretty much a programming powerhouse. You know, yes. we were we went from $10,000 a half-hour uh, music videos to, <laughs> you know, half a million-dollar sitcoms and million-dollar um, dramas, uh, hour-long dramas. And that took us a while. You know, you can do it overnight. Right. Uh, but people saw the progress and they appreciate it because our, our audience always wanted BET to look just like ABC and CBS. They never understood the difference between broadcast networks and cable networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were one of the earliest networks to get uh, cable networks to start doing original programming. You sure were. Um, so I had uh, Viacom's confidence and they were willing to invest. And, um, yeah, I'm really proud of the programming we did over time. Um, And a a lot of young black men especially still stop me and say, thank you for what you've done for the culture. Because, you know, I really tried to focus. We we had a three-word mission statement, which is to respect, reflect, and elevate our audience. So it's very important uh, to me especially to show authentic images. And, you know, when you got it right, when you when you produce a show like Being Mary Jane, where the audience showed up, you know, by the millions every week, mm-hmm. um, and and showed um, African Americans in an authentic way, that's you know something to be very proud of. You should uh, be very proud. And yeah, you thank re- you. You redesigned the mission also to include families and right. uh, families' Family dreams and promoting uh, a fresh look at talent uh, right. from from the family perspective. And uh, you know, it's just incredible. Uh, You've been very, very generous with your time. And tell our listeners we're talking to uh, former chairman and CEO of Black Entertainment Television, Deborah Lee. Uh, before I let you go, I, I want to talk a little bit more about mm-hmm. not only what you accomplished, and let's think now, and let's be very frank here, you did this as an African-American woman. And yeah. I think that's a, that's something that our listeners need to know, and I am very proud of and proud to be associated with you because extremely uh, tough times for not only African-Americans in the business world, but for an African-American woman. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's something that our listeners should certainly need to know, and uh, I'm very extremely proud of it. Right. Well, thank you. Um you know, I, I still look at the business world, and I still look at the boards I'm on. I'm still on the Twitter board and the Marriott board. Um, and there's, you know, there hasn't been as much progress as we would like right. on, the, on the female side and especially on the black female side in the business world. Um, and that's one of the things I hope to help with, you know, in my new, this new phase of life. Um, and I have a conference called Leading Women Define, which I started while I was at BET, and we just celebrated the 10th anniversary. And one of the great things about it is it brings prominent African-American women together, but we talk about issues and how we can 
retain women so that they can rise to the COO, CEO ranks, um, and and other issues that women in the workplace have. So there's still a lot of work to be done. I mean, I'm, I'm very proud of what I was able to accomplish, but we need to, to make it a better place for our daughters. So if, if people want to have, if women want to have a career on the business side, you know, they, they can. Um, and, um, you know, we, we need to keep pushing that we need diversity of ideas in all kinds of businesses. And when you see some of these businesses stumble and make a mistake with marketing or images, you know, you just right. have to think to yourself, if they had more black people in executive positions, these things would not happen. You're absolutely um, right. Yeah. But I want to say congratulations on Leadership Women Defined. Uh, this is your 10th year. Uh, right. And I would certainly say uh, kudos to you and continue your good work. Uh, before Great. we sign Thank off, you. you've done so many uh-huh. other things in the not-for-profit world. You served uh-huh. on many corporate boards, Marriott, Revlon, Washington right. Gas, and now now Twitter. And you've uh-huh. received so many honors, uh, Broadcasting Cable Hall of Fame, the 2014 Honorary Doctorate from your alma mater, Brown University. Right. You have achieved you. so much in your time. Uh, is there, before we close, any words you'd like to say about that illustrious career to those listeners, particularly to women of color, about yeah. about your background? Oh, I appreciate that question. I think, you know, I started off by saying I went to law school because I wanted to give back. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I found another way to give back. You know, and, and BET became that that vehicle where, you know, through the media business, through all the other businesses, uh, we started at, at BET Networks, through my board work at other companies, uh, through my political um, affiliations, um, um, supporting different candidates, through my not-for-profit work. I mean, I really uh, feel very satisfied that I found my way to give back. Um, um, and it, it's a combination of corporate board work and not-for-profit work. I've been doing Alvin Ailey for years. Um, I'm on the Paley Center. I'm on the American Film Institute. I mean, any way I can help the next generation of young um, black males and females find their way in the uh, media business or find opportunities or help our culture, you know, on the art side. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just something I, I feel really good about. And, um, you know, I have two children of my own. I hope I'm passing it down to them. They're both in the music industry. Great. Um, and I just think it's, it, in terms of advice, I always say the important thing is to find something you feel passionate about and work at it as, as hard as you can, you know, because we all work too hard, and you have to find something that you love, um, because that's where you'll excel. And you know, and the first step is to get a good education. I learned right. that from my parents. But after that, find something you love, and whether it's a business, a cause, you know, an organization, and and you know, find a way to give back. It's it's just so important. Well, you have been a real inspiration to me and to many others, and particularly uh, the African Americans and to persons of color. Uh, you are a shining example and role model. We have been talking to Deborah Lee, uh, former chairman and CEO of Black Entertainment Television, who's just stepped down. Debbie, thanks for this wonderful interview, and uh, take some time off. You've done some incredible <laughs> things, and you deserve <laughs> Thank it. You. you deserve a little time off. Thank you. And it's, Thank you. It's been wonderful. And All I, right. It's been great talking to you, Del. Thank you. We'll be back Thank in touch. Thank you.
Okay. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Fly on the Wall podcast. This is Ambassador Delano Lewis. We just had a fantastic interview with the former chairman and CEO of Black Entertainment Television, Deborah Lee, with her outstanding and incredible background of over 30 years in the cable and entertainment industry. So, listeners, please come back. We have some other successful conversations coming up. So, until next time, Godspeed. You have been listening to the Fly on the Wall podcast. For more information about this episode and previous episodes, plus great merchandise and more, please visit our website at flyonthewallpodcast.com today.